Well, we are in this series called Free, and we began last week by saying it's very difficult to solve a problem when you don't know what's wrong to begin with. And for some of us, we have been working on us for a long time, but we don't seem to make much progress. I mean, sometime, sometimes friends or somebody you're in a relationship with, maybe a husband or a wife or your parents or maybe your kids look at you sometimes and go, what is wrong with you? Or there's just times like you look in the mirror and you have done or said something again, you look in the mirror, it's like, what is wrong with me? Why does, what is this, why does this keep happening? And just a few weeks ago, we actually leaned into a fantastic personality profiling tool called the Enneagram. And tools like that and counseling, all these things can be so helpful in better understanding our personality and our temperament and what motivates us. And those insights have the potential to just greatly help uh, greatly help us address some of the blind spots and the rougher edges and the dysfunction in our life to be able to function better in our lives and in our relationships with others. But we are going even deeper. In fact, periodically I'll hear people say, you know, like, I, w- I really want to go deep. I'm like, all right, well, buckle up because we, we're going deeper uh, because we're getting deeper than just a personality thing, deep, deeper than a temperament thing, deeper than life experience. And we're getting to actually what is our core problem and our core challenge and the thing that's going to trip us up every time. Uh, But it may be that you don't know what the problem may be, which is why you've maybe made such little progress in certain areas of your life. So last week, we looked at the New Testament and something written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul had hung out with Matthew and sat under Mark. He spent time with Peter. He traveled with Luke. Uh, He knew John, which means that very likely he had actually met Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he took all of these teachings of Jesus and he wrote and talked about them in such a way to give us a better insight into what's wrong with us, what our core problem is. And it also, he also provides the solution. So he said last week, the problem, uh, what the problem was, and today and for the next couple of Sundays, we're going to take a look at the solution. Now, if you're not a Bible person or if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you to open your mind, because even if you're not sure about the Bible, if you're not a Christian, here's what I know about you. There are things in your life that you can't change. There are things in your life that you can't change, and you've tried, and you've tried, and tried. Maybe you've even spent a lot of money to try and change that, to fix you, and you've had lots of long conversations with people that you love, people who love you, trying you to get you to change you. And whether you're a Jesus follower or not, I just want you to listen carefully and to consider what Paul says and how he describes his experience with this problem that we all have and share. And this passage of Scripture is one that we can all identify with because at some point in our lives we have all been there. Here's how he describes it. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, which you may not like that term, but you will be the first to admit that there's something in you that's like another you. There's something in you that just seems to take over your will and take over your good sense, which is why you look back at some of the things that you have said and done in your life, maybe this past week, and you ask yourself, what was I thinking? What is wrong with me? So you identify with what Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And then he gives us a bit of insight into what that is. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, 
It is no longer I who do it, but the, the sin, the sin that is living in me that does it. Now, you don't have to be a religious person to get that, right? I mean, how many times have you driven home or you've laid your head on the pillow or you've woken up the next morning and thought, I did it again. What's wrong with me? Or you end up having a long, difficult conversation with your significant other, your husband, your wife, your kids, and though you keep defending your actions and you keep defending the things that you do or don't, the things that do or don't come out of your mouth, you know there's a problem. And you know it's, it, it's with you and it's in you. We've all been there. And some of you, you're there right now and you've tried all kinds of stuff to change it, yet we have an easier time training dogs than we do ourselves. I mean, think of it. Our dogs have no self-destructive behaviors. Okay, shoes, furniture, carpet, yes, they will destroy, but not self-destructive behaviors. When it comes to humans, like when it comes to us, it's why is it that people who say they love you, people that you love, hurt you? And then you do things or you say things that hurt or even destroy relationships or destroy your finances. It's why most of us would say sometimes we love dogs more than we love people. And some of you would go, some of the time, like all the time, all right, this is all the time. Why is that? Why do we tend to be our own worst enemy? You have a theory as to what that is. You may blame your parents. You may blame, blame your family of origin, the way you grew up, maybe some big experience in your life. But last week, we looked at what the Apostle Paul said he believed it was. And here's what he said. He said that once upon a time, that he actually believed that in, in history, that there was an individual named Adam. And, and we said the reason that we take Adam seriously isn't because the Bible tells us to take Adam seriously. The reason we take Adam seriously is because Jesus, who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, confirmed by hundreds of witnesses, Jesus took Adam seriously. He believed in a literal Adam. And when a guy can predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, we'll just go with what he says. And Paul points out that the entire human race was in Adam. And so uh, Mother Teresa was in Adam, Billy Graham was in Adam, uh, your mom and dad were in Adam, you were in Adam. So everybody that was born was born in Adam. And so what was true of Adam became true of us because Paul says that through Adam, sin entered the world. That when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And this is so important because as we said last week, Paul referred to or talked about sin as a noun. That when Adam verb sinned, that the noun sin, the action of disobeying God, he became in a sense patient zero. And who passed it all down to us. So we were born into now, we were born in, into sin which we can all understand how one person's decision can affect everyone. We've all seen babies born with a deformity or born addicted to drugs because of a decision of a parent. Uh, maybe uh, you are at high risk for major health issues because of the family you were born into, the people you are genetically related to. So you get this. And it's not fair, but it's true. And it's not fair, but it's true. And it's true that we came into this world with the guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin, and the fact that you and everyone that you love will eventually die is proof of the fact that sin rules over us because on the heels of sin comes death. Sin always kills things. And Paul would say that the reason you keep doing the things that you don't want to do, the reason there's this internal battle 
is because sin lives in you and sin is your master. And there are just times it's as if you have no option to obey the sin in you. Now, you may think that sounds too mystical or too weird, and that's okay, but just, just go with Paul for a minute. This is his explanation as to why we do the things that we don't want to do. And then at the end of this, here's how he ends this big, giant lament. He says, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. And that's pretty extreme, but you know what that tells us? It it, it tells us that the thing that he wished he didn't do, but that he kept on doing was no small thing. That it was big. It wasn't like, I keep driving five miles over the speed limit. What a wretched man I am. It isn't, my wife has to still remind me to unload the dishwasher. I should remember to do that on my own. What a wretched man I am. No, whatever it was, it was much bigger. But he doesn't tell us what it was. And I'm kind of glad that he doesn't. Because most of us, we don't want to name it in our lives either. And whatever it was, it just drove him to the point of, what is wrong with me? I know what I ought to do, but it's like I just can't do it consistently. It's like I have a good day or a good two or a good three days where I'm kind of having victory over this thing, but then I fail. And then in a moment of exasperation with himself, he just exclaims, "What what a wretched man I am. And whether you're a Christian or not, there's moments where you feel that. What is wrong with me? You would do anything you could do to change you if you could. Anything to break this habit you just can't seem to break. I would do anything to be able to rid myself of this incessant thing that just drives me to do and say things that hurt and disappoint others and sometimes hurts myself. It always hurts myself. Things that I regret. Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. And then he asked this pleading question, what will rescue me? What will rescue me? But that is not what Paul actually asked. See, that's the question we ask. The question we ask is, what can I do? What can I change? What can I read? What insight will save me from myself? What worldview will change everything? And what you've discovered is there is no what that will save and rescue you. There's no sermon. There's no verse. There's no what. There's a who. Paul's actual question is who? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me from this thing in me that causes me to self-sabotage myself, at times loathe myself, and how I treat people that I claim to love. And he goes on, thanks be to God who delivers me through, and this is going to be our big word for the next three weeks, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you read the New Testament, especially the letters, and I wish all of you would read the New Testament just regularly, I wish you would, and throughout you'll see phrases like through Christ or through Him or in Christ or in me. And you read it, and you think this must be like some sort of big motivational thing. And you keep, keep on going. But Paul's about to tell us it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than like some banner that they hold up so the football team can run through to pump them up. It's bigger than that. There's something very significant about the whole idea of something through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because in this, the Apostle Paul is introducing us to the solution. Because the solution isn't you. The solution isn't more discipline. The solution isn't more willpower. Although in the New Testament, he encourages all these things. In fact, he says in one part that so many of these things are fruits of the Spirit working in your life. He says it's bigger than that. So in the next few minutes, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how the who connects to your do. Because if I can get the who, if I can get the who to connect to my do, then maybe I will begin to win. Maybe I'll begin to ultimately stop doing the things that I don't want to do and start doing the things that I want to do. And the Apostle Paul 
tells us that that's how he found victory over these things that controlled his life for so many years that he tried to overcome on his own. And it's so complicated, but it is so powerful. And as I've said, one of the reasons it's so complicated is because I don't think Paul was writing this. I think he was dictating this. And if you've ever dictated something, I mean, imagine if there was no erase, there's no backspace, there's no starting over because paper was so expensive. So there's like starts and stops, and especially if you've got a mind like mine, like, like you rabbit trail, like, oh, I didn't finish that other thought, I need to go back to it, and all that. So this, this is Paul. So there's starts and stops, and he revisits things. So I'm going to try to take you through these verses in a way that's clarifying because the truth of these verses is so extremely liberating. Thus the name of this series, Free. And, and to help you, I'm going to go ahead and give you up front the bottom line uh, before we look at these verses in case I lose you in the weeds. And, and then in the end, I'm going to give you an illustration that pulls all this together, and I won't ever have anybody ever tell me, Chad, I really want to go deep, okay, after these three weeks. So, so here's, here's, basically, here's what he's going to tell us that just as the single unrighteous act of one man, Adam, ensures that you were born a slave to sin, so the single righteous act of the one man, Jesus, frees you from the power of sin. That when Adam sinned, in the very beginning, he, as patient zero, introduced sin into the world, which meant that everyone related to Adam, which is all of us, that we are ultimately because of this one single unrighteous act of this man, he ensured that we were born slaves to sin. So the one single righteous act, specifically his death, the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ, has the, the one man has the potential to free us from the power of sin. And that's what he's going to tell us. And he's also going to explain uh, something that some of you are just going to have a hard time believing. In fact, he starts his discussion saying, don't you know? Because even his audience didn't know, we didn't know, and it's hard to understand. So this is Romans 6. If you want to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app, we're going to begin in verse 2. Again, complicated verse, so hang in there with me. Because you're here, I already know you're smart people. Uh, he's talking to Christians, and uh, he says, we are those who have died to sin. And then he asks a question. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live, in, in, live it any longer? We have died to sin. How can we live in it? To which I would quickly raise my hand and just say, well, it's really simple, Paul. Like, follow me around. I will quickly show you how a Christian lives in sin. It, like, takes no effort. Uh, it, it's just, like, no discipline. I don't need a little card on my mirror uh, in my car or in my house or my little pop-up reminder that says, hey, sexy, remember, live in sin today. Like, I don't need that. I don't need any reminders. It just comes naturally. And then I get to the end of my day and like go, man, I loaded my day with sin. Heavenly Father, uh, please forgive me of my sin. And I was taught in Sunday school that God forgives my sin or he forgets it somehow. And my slate is wiped clean. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm not asking how you continue to live in sin. What I'm asking is why? Why would those who have been freed from sin continue to live in it? Why do you keep doing uh, and saying that? Why do you keep continuing to live that kind of a lifestyle? Why would you treat your body that way? Why do you keep screaming at your kids? Why would those of you who have been freed from the power of sin continue to live under the power of sin? The implication being that somehow you now have a choice. And so Paul's question is, so why do you keep saying yes? Why do you keep saying yes to a master who is no longer your master? To which we go, I don't know how to respond to that. 
It's just who I am. It's just how I'm, I'm wired. I, I, I can't help it. And then it dawns on Paul. He says, or don't you know? To which you go, no, whatever you're talking about. Like, I don't know. I still don't know. No, I didn't. I just figured I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm not as bad as some, but I'm not as good as some. I just sin. I can't help it. And then I go, Nobody, nobody's perfect. And then I just ask God to forgive me. And I thought that was the whole deal. And Paul's going, oh, didn't you know? There's so much more. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And you're, and you're going, not only did I know that, not know that, but I also have no clue what you're talking about, Paul. But, but this is so important. See, we see the word baptism, and immediately our minds go to water baptism. That's what, just what we think of. But he's not talking about that. That little word baptize, which we've talked around, about around here, it, it just was a common word. It had no religious connotation. It just simply meant to be play, to, to dip, to immerse, to be put in something, to be uh, put something in something. So here's what he's saying. Just follow me. Don't you know that when you were baptized into or placed into Christ, you were taken out of Adam and you were placed into Christ? And so uh, we'll take... Shauna here, she's right on the top, and she's far less of a sinner than many of you, okay? So we'll just go ahead and put, I got you, babe. And uh, like, here's me, taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. So there's something that is happening. And, uh, I, I, you know, he, so again, here's me. Paul's saying, Paul's saying, don't you know? Don't you know that when you're taken out of Adam, you're placed, or he uses the word baptized, you're placed into Christ. And when that happens... You're taken out of Adam. You were placed into Jesus's, into Christ's death. Now, again, this can be so confusing. And this is a side note to help us, like Peter. Peter, like I love Peter. And in one of his letters, he writes about Paul. He says, Paul writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Okay, so you think? So, again, we're not alone trying to understand because he's trying to introduce something that's so important. Remember, he said that when you were in Adam, what was true of Adam was also true of you. You were separated from God. You were lost. You were dying. You were a prisoner to the power of sin. Sin was your master. Even though it wasn't fair, it's not your fault, it's real. Just because something's not fair doesn't make it not real. And Paul says that the unfair truth is you and I were born infected. We were born condemned by because you were and are related to Adam. And Paul says that when you place your faith in Christ, that you're taken out of Adam and that you're put in Christ, which means ultimately you're taken out of Adam, placed out of Adam, placed into Christ permanently, which means that in that moment, just as what was true of you when you were in Adam, now everything that was true of and is true of Christ is now true of you because you're now in Christ and when he died it's as if you died you are in Christ which means that all of the benefits all of the ramifications of his death are now true of you as well he goes on we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too may live what would be a great church name new life in other words, whereas all the consequences of Adam's sin were applied to us, now all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection have been applied to us because we are now in Him. 
Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time or if you grew up in church, then you already believed a part of this. And here's the part you believed, that somehow because you prayed a prayer or you asked Jesus in your heart to forgive you, however it looked like, you know, forgive you of your, your sin, that you were taken out of Adam, out of condemnation, and that you were placed into Christ. And what that means is that you get to go to heaven when you die. And that's the part that you have believed. And that's part of the message of the gospel. But, but Paul's trying to tell us that not only does it apply after we die, it applies in this life. And what he says next are some of the most powerful, complicated verses in the entire New Testament. He says, for, for we know that our old self, our old self that was in Adam, our old self was crucified with Jesus. So what Paul is saying that you were crucified with him. The reason you get to go to heaven when you die is because you are in Christ. And the reason you're able to live a new kind of life now is for the very same reason. Paul, you're doing that confusing thing again. I know. He says, so for, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our body ruled by sin might be done away with. So literally, here's what it means. It means that, that the part of you that was ruled by sin is no longer that you are no longer uh, under the power and the dictate of sin. To which we immediately push back and go, no, Paul, you're wrong. Like, I remember stuff this week, people, stuff that I've never, not told anybody about, you're wrong. Paul would say, hold on, listen, I know you could easily give me your own naughty list, okay? I could do the same thing, I get it. He, he says, but I just want you to understand something that you didn't know or that you don't understand, that there is a greater significance and implication in what happened when you were placed in Christ. So let me read the whole verse again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Or the better wording would be that we should no longer live as slaves to sin. That I should no longer say yes to sin because I'm not a slave of sin. And again, we go, Paul, this is not helpful because the temptations are so strong especially in the moment, especially if I'm amped up. But Paul would say, well, yeah, I, I know, I get that. But it's not your master anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin because you were taken out of Adam and you were placed into Christ. And in that moment, it lost all of its power and all of its authority over you. But our experience feels very differently, doesn't it? It's so frustrating. And again, we're ready to argue with Paul, but of course he's not done. He says, here's how we know this is true. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, have you ever tried to tempt a corpse? Okay? Some of you saw some of these beautiful cinnamon rolls in the, in, in the back, like go on, go up to a corpse, go, hey, you want a bite? No response. Okay, when you die, all right, like all power of sin, but you're, like you're never going to be tempted to overeat again. You're never going to be tempted by anything ever again. You are free from the power of sin. So, so Paul is saying when you are placed into Christ that you died with Christ, which means you died to the slave master of sin. He goes on, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. It happened once and for all and it happened once for all. Not just for the nation of Israel. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And now it all makes sense, right? No, that's why we got two more weeks, okay? Now, at, at this point, he's coming to the application, circling the airport. So, thus far, Paul has, is saying, 
And Paul, you're saying, in some mystical, weird way, there was an actual man named Adam. And because physically we're all from Adam, I was born in Adam. Okay, I get that. And Adam sinned, and so the consequences of his sin, patient zero, were unfortunately passed down to me, whether I, it was fair or not. I was born in sin. I don't like it, but I get it. And now somehow sin has this power that I'm born with, and there's this power over me. But then, when I place my faith in Christ and recognize what He did on the cross for me, that somehow I am taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. And so what was true of me is now no longer true of me. Paul would say, yes. So I'm like a different person? Yes. So I like having different identity? Yes. Okay, but Paul, even though like I prayed a prayer and I put my faith in Jesus and was taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, like here's my problem, okay? I'm so accustomed to living my life the way I lived my life. I can't help the fact that sometimes I have tendencies to think and do and act and behave and respond the ways I already always have, even though I somehow have this new thing that is true of me. And Paul would say, listen, whether you can get your head around it or not, you have been placed into Christ. It's as if you died. And the death that he died to sin, he died once and for all, which means that you in Christ died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your owner. So sin no longer controls you unless you choose to say yes to the sin that used to be your master. And then he comes to his application. I'm going to read it, explain it, and then we'll pick it up there. TJ's going to help us pick up there next week. Here's the application. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. In the same way that Christ died to sin once for all, you also count yourself dead to sin. Well, why? Well, because Christ lived a sinless life, then he allowed death to kill him, and then he came back to life, and he says, if you trust in me, you're in me. And just as sin was not his master in life or death, sin is now no longer your master in life or in death. So Paul says, just as Christ's death and resurrection demonstrated the fact that he overcame the power of sin, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, again, there's that like choice word, do not let Sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness for sin. So no longer be your master. Now, I just want us to practice something. And again, even if you're not a Bible person or a Christian yet, you can play along. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just, I just want you to hear yourself say something. And it's going to feel weird and awkward, but it's something I've, I have done. I've done more than once. And it feels a little weird. But because we're going to jump into this in a big way next week, I just want you to hear yourself say this. Sin is not my master. Oh, man, you're responsive. I just want you to hear again. Just whisper it, even if you're joining us online, or I just say it. Sin is not my master. One more time, sin is not my master. You need to tell yourself that a hundred times a day. Why? Because sin is not your master. So, as I bring this home, let me just help you get your head around this practically. 
And the way I want to do that is I want you to think of international adoption. Okay? Uh, my wife and I, we have dear friends who have adopted more than one child from China, one of them uh, with special needs. Uh, many of you have known somebody who has adopted internationally. So here's this baby or toddler, maybe even a teenager, living in another country in an orphanage with several layers of authority over them, right? There's a government. There's a state. There's the institution, the orphanage. There's the staff that work in the orphanage. And every single day, that child's life is completely dictated by the rules and laws of the government, the state, and that specific institution and the people in the orphanage. Uh, this is when you get up. Here's when and where you sleep. Here's what you do during the day. Here's when you eat. Here's what you eat. Here's where you go to class. Here's where you do this. This is what you do in the afternoon. Here's who you live with. Here you, who's, here's who you bunk with or room with. Uh, the, and the government and the institution completely dictate that child's life. And then, even though it may take months or years and thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars, there's a final moment with the stroke of a pen and in some cases, the child doesn't even know what's happening. They're, they're too young or they're too unaware to understand. But with the stroke of a pen, a legal transaction goes beyond the child's understanding and will and decision-making ability. Follow me? And this moment takes place. And something amazing happens. In that singular moment, that child goes from orphan to family member. In many, many cases, that child goes from no wealth and no financial future to, by our standards, and certainly by international standards, wealthy. He or she goes from name to new name. I mean, there are just so many ramifications, and though it is beyond the understanding, the will, or the decision-making ability of the child, it happens, and it happens instantly, in a moment. But the older the child is, as many of you know, the longer it takes for the child to grow accustomed to this new place and this new world and this new identity and this new family and a new language and a new love, this whole new existence, it can take months. Many times it takes years for them to reorient and recalibrate their minds because all they've ever known is all they've ever known. And for many, it takes a long time for them to wake up to the reality of, I'm not who I used to be. Everything is different now. Everything is different. I'm loved. I'm valued. I'm part of a family. And for the sake of our discussion, here's what's most important when it comes to international adoption. That with the stroke of a pen, that government, that state, that institution, that orphanage, the staff, as wonderful or as horrible as they may be, with the stroke of a pen, they lose all authority over that child. All of it. They, have, they no longer have any authority whatsoever, whatsoever after, uh, for, over that child. And the ramifications of how they handled that child up to that point often carries with the child, but that state or institution and orphanage, they can call, they can write, they can text, they can email, they could even show up in, at the door and try to dictate something about that child's life or even to try and take them back. But the new mom and dad says, no, you have no authority. You have no authority over this child anymore because they now belong to us. They are permanently a part of our family now. So please get this. Paul is saying that when you were taken out of Adam 
and into Christ and placed into Christ that whether you really understood it or not, you got a new name. You got a new identity. You got a new family. You got a new destiny. And on and on and on. But maybe most significantly, when it comes to our earthly experience, sin has lost its authority over you. Now, you may struggle to believe it. You may struggle to feel it. And like those kids that will hoard food or act out because they're afraid that they're going to miss out on something or they struggle for many times for years, sometimes their whole lives, to fully trust. There may be something in you that is afraid, that's afraid to trust. And you may have been saying yes to sin ever since you became a Christian. You may have been saying yes to sin your entire life because it's just so deep in you and it's so driven into your nature. And you felt like you didn't have any choice. And you found yourself, find yourself in this awful battle of, I don't want to, but I kind of do want to, but I don't want to. And we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. I want to invite the band to come up. And here's what you need to know from this point forward. That for the rest of your life, whether you do anything about it or not, is up to you. But if you've placed your trust and your faith in Christ, Sin is not your master. That with the stroke of a pen, with a death on a cross, sin lost all authority over you. And you not only have permission, but you have the encouragement of a God who loves you and invites you to call Him not just Heavenly Father, but Dad. The perfection of Dad. To just say no to that sin and to say it, maybe for you, one of the best things you could do under your breath or say it out loud is sin is not my master. Sin, you're not my master. Sin, you are no longer my master. And sin, you can prod and bait and tempt and, and, and taunt, but sin, you need to know I'm, I'm in Christ. So no matter what happens, I'm in Christ. And when he died, I died. And with the stroke of a pen, with the death on a cross, the final breath on a cross, sin, you are not my master. Can you imagine the freedom of just living your life like that? That no matter what happens, there's nothing you can do that will make God love you less or love you more. Can you imagine this, this evening where there it is again, there he is again, she is again, that thing, and there's that temptation again, but suddenly you're like, hold on, this is just sin trying to taunt me back into an identity, into a place and a way of thinking and acting that sin, you're not my master anymore. So here's my little homework assignment. You don't even have to change any of your behavior, Okay. If you want to be my guest, that'd be great. But all I'm going to ask you to do is over the next week, in those moments of temptation, which you're going to have, in those moments of temptation where you're just overwhelmed with despair or loneliness or lust, uh, in that moment where you're just overwhelmed with anger or frustration, whatever it is, jealousy, exhaustion, whatever it is, and suddenly you start to go to that place you always tend to go with your words, with your behavior, with your actions, all I would ask is that you would just pause long enough to just whisper out loud, Sin, you are not my master. I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive in God. And then just go ahead and do it if you have to. But let me tell you, if this becomes your new approach, if this becomes your new grid through which you see your life and your marriage and your relationships and your kids and your habits, habits that you ought to have, habits that you need to get rid of, with your discipline, your body, your health, the way you think, it's going to change things. Because you are not the person you used to be. There's no point in living the way you used to live. 
Sin is not your master. Let me pray for us. Father, this is so difficult for us to understand because it's just so deeply ingrained in us. We're just hardwired, honestly, to not trust you. So many times you just feel so invisible and so distant. And Father, we just get wrapped up in, in the things that we're drawn toward and our fear oftentimes. And so I just pray for all of us that as complicated as Paul's words can be, I pray that somehow you would remove any darkness from them, remove any confusion, and that, Father, you would just drive this into our heart that we are free. There is no condemnation in store for us that has put our, our faith and our trust in your Son. And that we would just feel the, the weight of guilt and shame just lifted from us. That honestly, at times, this drives us into more repeat behaviors because we think, why not? What's the point? So I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would help us and strengthen us in this and help us to truly understand the love, the unconditional love you have for us, that we might be free. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.